I like difficult things and I like challenges. And a lot of the ch change in my early career was accidental. So I didn't go in because I was naive and didn't really do my research around um, some of the things I was getting myself into. Um, I perhaps didn't really get the scale of what I'd signed up to until I arrived. And then I got to my desk and looked at my staff and went, oh heck, holy heck, this is quite big. There's some big issues going on here and there's some difficult things. Um, what am I going to do? And uh, there's no manual for that. There's often um, there's not, not a lot of money to, to brand consultants to help you do stuff, so you, um, you're on your own a little bit and you just got to figure it out. But isn't that fantastic and isn't that the best way to learn? And so I'm just thankful to have the opportunities where I've been able to experiment. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a transformational leader who is intuitive, professional and highly engaging. His talents go beyond the business world into community organizations such as surf life saving, education and regional health, and was a national champion surf lifesaver and kayaker. He has a diploma of teaching, Bachelor of Education and Bachelor of Leisure Studies Health and PE from the University of Waikato. His early career began as a teacher and then had managerial roles in places such as Surfly Saving New Zealand, Howard Wright Limited, and Genai Spark Digital. As a natural leader, he has assumed CEO roles at Sport Eastland, Swimming New Zealand, and the Taranaki Rugby Football Union, as well as recently being the headmaster of New Plymouth Boys High School. As a proud servant to the community, he has held director and board roles at the Taranaki District Health Board Kaitaki Community Board, Okura School, and New Zealand Academy of Sport and Surf Lifesaving Wellington. I'm honoured and privileged to introduce to you a peaceful warrior, a personable influencer, proud father of two sons, an active CEO who will regularly find him recharging on a skateboard, surfboard, or even a mountain bike, Paul Verich. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Craig. Great to, great to talk to you. Uh, it's it's a fantastic to have you on the show, and look, we've known each other for you know quite a few years now, and have a number of things in common, which we'll delve into throughout the show. You were born in Wellington, New Zealand, and moved to Taranaki as a young child. You know, for you, what was life like growing up in Taranaki? Oh, I just had a blessed childhood, really. I mean, I I don't think I could have wished for anything better. We were a, a working class family. Um, my mother didn't work um, when we were very young, so we'd go home, and, and, and mum would be, you know, home looking after us, and, and dad would be working, you know, pretty long hours. He was an engineer, um, fitter and turner at uh, Fitzroy Engineering, a, a local company here, and worked worked long hours, worked very hard. We didn't have much, so what we did have, we really appreciated, and and we lived a simple life. We did simple things. Our um, our holidays were were local, um, and we were just taught to you know, respect and, and be thankful for the things that we've, we've got. Uh, my father's Croatian, he was born in Croatia and, uh, 
and actually um, got out of communist uh, Croatia when he was about 21 and so he started a new life for himself which was incredibly difficult and, and he, the life he built for us was something that we just would never have had if, if he had stayed in Croatia so really grateful to that and I guess that's probably one of the things that's, that's developed myself and, and my sister and um, is, is seeing his um, work ethic and, and, and his appreciation of the simple things and, and what's important. Yeah, so, you know, from that, you know, the upbringing as well, like, you know, was sport a huge part of your life uh, during those, you know, sort of young years? Yeah, it always was. It wasn't something that was forced on us. And I think that's probably a, a key thing for, for us growing up was that we are never made to do anything. Everything was just about having fun. And um, if you want to try something, then, then go for it. Uh, the only thing I think they made me do was swim because neither my parents could swim at all. So uh, that was a non-negotiable. But other than that, we were kicking a you know, soccer ball around and, running and yeah bike riding and, and all of those things that are typical we had the typical kiwi childhood you know yeah. playing in the backyard going to friends houses making go-karts playing in the bush you know it was just absolutely yeah just just wonderful so you, you know, your schooling was at New Plymouth Boys High School uh, obviously at high school level there and you had quite an affinity you know you were head boy and then most recently as we mentioned earlier um, as headmaster you know, what were the big lessons that New Plymouth Boys High School gave you while you were, you know, a student? Uh, I owe a huge amount to that school and, and, and that's why I was motivated to get back there actually. But I was, I was quite a quiet um, sort of student and, and I was always very, you know, well behaved and, and, I, and I did okay but I had to work hard. I wouldn't say I was the smartest um, kid in the school but uh, really enjoyed it. Hated speeches and hated talking, terrified of it and... I, it was a big surprise to me when I was named head boy of the school and and I remember going home and and actually um, bursting into tears in front of my mum and I don't oh, think wow. I'd cried for about four years um, and I remember going home and bursting into tears saying to my mum, I don't know how I can do this, I can't even do a speech in, in my school class so how did I get this job? And and typical mum who was um, pretty pragmatic and, and not really one to delve too much into the emotional side of things said, oh, you'll be all right. What do you want for lunch? Um, that was her, um, her response. So you just sort of had to suck it up and uh, and being forced into that situation of, of physically feeling sick every time I th- you know, had to go and speak in front of the school, which was three times a week at full school assemblies with you know 1,300 boys. And in the morning I'd be just you know, almost throwing up and then, but I'd do it and each day it got a little bit easier and a little bit better and and that really gave me a huge amount of internal confidence, I guess, around trying new things and being able to push through stuff that's quite difficult and, and that's why I think it was such a, it was such a big thing for me and such an important part of my leadership development um, was that role. And, and so did you have any other leadership aspects at school you know with sport or even in education yeah, yeah I guess I guess I'd, you know for whatever reason I was always lucky enough to be the captain of the football team or the um, you know captain of the swimming team or or, or asked to, to, to lead things um, at various times I didn't go through any formal leadership training or anything like that but other than the, the head boy role which is a you know a real it's just um, leadership by um, you know, being dunked in the pool, really thrown in, and and, um, and left to left to just cope with it. And so, so my training was always on the job, as opposed to anything structured or formal. Yeah. 
And were there any standout teachers there that had a profound influence in, in shaping you as a leader and who you are today? And why? Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I really, um, the headmaster, um, Tom Ryder, who's, who's, who's passed away now, he, when I first went to Boys High, I was terrified of him. If he walked in my direction, I'd, I'd turn a corner to hopefully I wouldn't bump into him because he, he was a very, um, a very strong and dictatorial and, um, and, and quite um, dogmatic leader. And, uh, you know, he, he'd be honest about this if he was here. He wasn't super well liked by all the staff and, and all the students, but he was respected. Um, because he demanded excellence and I was lucky enough to speak at his, at his funeral and, and that was one of the things I said he didn't expect um, he didn't ask for excellence he expected it he demanded it and, and, he, and because of that everyone rose around him and so I went from not liking the man and, and actually being quite um, terrified of him to actually seeing how much time and effort he put into the you know the creation of good young men and how much time he put into the school and I really respected him for that and saw what he did and while I didn't necessarily agree with his style and the way he went about it what he did for so many young men in the community was really inspiring to me and so I really um, really really you know admired him and then there were other teachers along the way um, too many to name that that just took a little interest in you you know pulled you aside said oh well done on Saturday I like what you did there on the football field or um, excellent assignment that you did or how about um, you know trying something different and going in this production or you know there, there were so many teachers and that were still there when I was actually headmaster which was which was pretty <laughs> interesting going into the staff room I'm sure but um, yeah really really lucky to have lots of influential people at that school. Yeah. Now you know I, I went to Stratford High School which is on the other side of the mountain mm -hmm. and you know kind of looked at boys hires for the posh kids and etc you know but this school has achieved really, really well, you know, academic excellence, but, you know, sporting excellence as well for a small community of, you know, or small region in New Zealand, it produces some really good athletes. If you haven't seen it before, and as a listener, go on the YouTube and have a look at rugby, um, New Plymouth Boys High School doing a haka at the gully. You know, how special is, is it when people come together for those rugby matches? Um, yeah, at boys high. It, it, there's a few things that are world class, and I'd and I'd say this to the students in, in various speeches when they're probably asleep most of the time. But I'd, <laughs> I'd I'd say to them that there's very few things that you'll see in your life that are truly world class and, and really inspiring. And, and the hucker on the gully, for those who haven't seen it, is is something exceptional. And and you've got 13 boys in this natural amphitheatre of um of these grass terraces, um, very very close. Um, to the to the field and all the boys doing the haka um, in unison with passion, the sound just carries. Um, the girls high school, which is a, a kilometre or so away, can hear it when we when we do it. It's, it's it's that loud, and it is spine tingling. And I've seen it hundreds of times, and I never get sick of it. And it always makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up, yeah. as it does anyone else that gets to see it. And and um, really proud of that. And and it's testimony to the number of hits it gets on YouTube when it when that is played um, because it gets you know tens and tens of thousands of, of, um, of hits because of, of how special it is. So I know you, you know you're a very curious and, and very thoughtful person you know why did you decide to attend the University of Waikato um, to become a teacher? Um, it'll sound weird and and it's probably testimony to me and as a person as I actually went to teachers college to be a headmaster, not to be a teacher. Um, not because, uh, and, and going back to some of the early things I said was because I'd watched this 
headmaster Tom Ryder have such an impact on the community and because the school was so good to me I thought wow I'd love to do that one day and so I always had the goal of being headmaster in New Plymouth Boys High School when I was at, and actually that goal was set when I was um, year 13 or seventh form so I went to Waikato and, and chose a course there and, and, and really enjoyed it and, and ironically only taught for two, oh, three years two years at New Plymouth Boys, straight out of, um, out of Teachers College, which I loved. Had to move to Gisborne for my canoeing because our national coach was based there. Um, did some relief teaching at the at Gisborne Boys, which I really loved again. And then got offered a job um, which fitted in with my international kayaking a little bit better. So I was over in Europe over, over winter and um, and I was in Gisborne in summer and of course the teaching didn't really lend itself to that so I got offered a job and I thought well I'll do this for a few years while I'm kayaking and I'll go back to teaching. Well I never went back to teaching and, until the headmaster role and so so a long way of explaining I went to you know really ultimately wanted to be headmaster and that's what drove me to go to um, go to teachers college. Yeah so we'll, we'll delve back into the headmaster role later on in the, in the show. You know sport has been a, a huge part of your life and you've been you know, very fortunate to be involved in sport from you know, in a career point of view and then also as an athlete. There's a lot of passion involved in sport. You know, how did you manage utilizing the passion in the community, but then also having times where you have to fend the passion off? As headmaster or? No, in, in, you know, in your roles at say swimming oh. or other sporting roles. Oh, it's tough. I mean, but it's one of, one of the reasons why we do it, right? It's, um, it's that passion which makes it meaningful and, and, and gives it soul. Uh, if, if you didn't have that passion, I always say to people, if, if people aren't um, getting stuck into you because you haven't done something right or you've let a competition down or you haven't organised something as well as you should have, or um, then, then people stop caring. And we don't want people to stop caring about it. We want them to care. We want them to be passionate about sport and physical activity. And so uh, I really embrace that. While at the time it can be hard and, um, and not all the times people's passion is reasonable and logic and evidence-based. So <laughs> you, have to, you, know, you have to deal with that. But that's a challenge, isn't it? And challenge in sort of working them, um, getting them back on side or getting them to see the reasons why you've done something or haven't done something. And sometimes if you have you know, haven't done the right thing or you've made a mistake, we need to apologise. So yeah. put your big boy pants on and, um, and, and just apologise. And, and I've had to say sorry numerous times because of, you know, things I've personally done or staff have done or not willingly, of course, and not in a, in a negligent or a malicious way, but sometimes you just don't get it right. Yeah. And you need to suck it up and <laughs> admit it. And, and I think, you know, you touched on something there as well is that... The, the feedback in, in sport when you're working in it is pretty much immediate. Mm. You know, it's quite different and the same, be the same as a teacher, right? Mm. So a headmaster, whereas a lot of other industries, you don't generally get the feedback straight away. The passion's not there, so you don't see it until later on. So it can take a long time before you can actually learn mm. about some of the mistakes you may have made or, or some areas that don't quite fit in with the community that you're working with. Mm. So I think that's that's pretty special in that sporting world. Totally, totally. You you know you're two seconds away from getting a you know a complaint or or someone you know being really um, passionate about something because they're in the heat of the moment. They're either competing, they've just done a race, they're they're about to race, or they're an administrator and things aren't working for them. So yeah, they'll let you know about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've helped a number of sports such as swimming, New Zealand surf, life saving, New Zealand Taranaki rugby out when they in need of help, you know, so as a sport. So how would you define your leadership style and why do you think it is suited to transformational change? 
well, um, I, I don't know if I, my style suited transformational change. I, I guess I'm someone that that likes difficult problems, and if someone says you can't do it, then I'll, then I'll, I guess I've answered your question, haven't I? Um, I you know, <laughs> I, I, I like difficult things and I like challenges, and a lot of the ch- change in my early career was accidental. So I didn't go in because I was naive and didn't really do my research around um, some of the things I was getting myself into. Um, I perhaps didn't really get the scale of what I'd signed up to until I arrived. And then I got to my desk and looked at my staff and went, oh heck, holy heck, this is quite big. There's some big issues going on here and there's some difficult things. Um, what am I gonna do? And uh, there's no manual for that, there's often um, there's not, not a lot of money to, to bring consultants to help you do stuff, so you, um, you're you on your own a little bit and you just got to figure it out. But isn't that fantastic and isn't that the best way to learn? And so I'm just thankful to have the opportunities where I've been able to experiment with my leadership yeah. style and make a lot of mistakes along the way and, and, and learn a heck of a lot. And, and at the end of it, start to build a bit of a repertoire that helps you when you when you see that situation in another context. And so it gets a little bit easier as you get, um, you know, a little bit older and wiser. Hopefully, <laughs> that's the plan. So do you think that naivety is also quite helpful sometimes? Yeah, I think so because it means that you're not um, you don't have predetermined um, ideas or predetermined actions that you're going to take, or um, and and you're just going in fresh, and and that's the the, the best time to go into any organisation is, is is your first is your first day and your first week and your first month because you've really got a, a heck of a lot of licence to learn and be open minded and try different stuff and, and the honeymoon period as people call it, which does go away yep. pretty quickly, but it, it's a it's a really nice time to um, to take stock of an organisation and see what you can possibly do. And what do you think, you know, especially from the, you know, the first few years in the, in the workforce, you know, what do you think was probably one of the biggest lessons you learned yourself? You know, what was, say, something that you went, you, you made a mistake or you went down a direction and thinking it was the right way and went, you know what, I've got to switch back. You know, what were those, was there a big lesson that you learned? My, my big lesson was probably, my big early lessons were in staff management and managing employees and, and, um, and making mistakes around that. So giving people too much slack um, when in fact, you know, they needed to be pulled into line. Um, you know, recruitment was um, you know, making sure you recruit well and spend more time. I think someone said to me, uh, an organisation will spend more time deciding what TV they're gonna have in the boardroom than they are gonna be employing a, you know, a finance manager or a CFO um, or a CIO. Um, and so that, really stuck with me and, and so I'm very pedantic in particular about recruitment processes and, and, um, and, and who we employ and how we go about employing them and I spend a lot of time and, and very deliberate around that. So yeah, so my early lessons were mainly around employees. Um, mm. the, the next big lesson that I got really was from a, a guy who was on the board of swimming in New Zealand and and he really drilled me on vision and purpose and, and, and my I think he probably articulated it best to me and just kept pushing me and challenging me to really get clear and simple around what we were doing. And I really learnt a lot from that and it stuck with me. And so often organisations are just too complex and yeah. too um, trying to be too clever when actually, you know, simple is, is, is the... Um, is the most difficult thing that you can be actually. And um, Einstein said something about, um, you know, com- 
complexity or simplicity or something like that. Yeah. And, um, and, and Apple are a good example, I guess, of uh, a company who have tried to do that over the years. Is it's actually quite difficult to be um, to make things easy. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, he was he was he was really invaluable. So community and serving communities are, are, are in your blood. You know, surf life saving is one community you've been involved with for you know a couple of decades now, mm. and is an incredible community organisation where people serve to protect and save lives in the ocean. You know, what is it about surf life saving that attracted you and continues to be a part of your life? Well, it, what first attracted me to surf life saving was all the equipment. They had surfboards <laughs> and wave skis and cobra skis and. And so a friend took me down one day and I opened up this gear shed and it was full of gear. And I said, oh, how do we get to use this? He goes, you just go and use it. I'm like, serious. And so, you know, being at, I think I was 13, 12 or 13 at the time, I just thought this is, you know, it's like having, you know, Torpedo 7 in your backyard, really. <laughs> and um, so we, that's what got me into it. And then very quickly you start to understand the community service side of it and i don't know i just i've i've always been a i guess a, an overly competitive person and so the competition side of it i really really enjoyed and really liked but i always felt compelled to do a good job around the the volunteer side and the, the lifeguarding and the community service side and i ended up being a paid lifeguard and did beach education and so i got a huge amount of a lot of my summer jobs when i was at university were with surf life saving then i was a paid coach um, for a surf club, so it had given me so much. So what, what else could I do but just to give a little bit back and and um, and give something to the organisation that had given me a huge amount of teaching and learning and training and opportunities. And so it wasn't ever a question of why or um, or if. It was like how much can I you know give yeah. back? And then the chance to work for the organisation as well was really special. My wife is a um, is into surf lifesaving as well, and she always has been. She's a passionate, dedicated, um, and has been a volunteer. And our kids, although they're quite young and haven't started yet, are just starting to show an interest in it. And so, mm. can't wait till I'm down there coaching um, coaching the nippers. Um, hopefully, hopefully in January and February, and, and if not this year, next year for sure. Yeah, brilliant. So, you know, the responsibility of protecting the community in an environment that needs so much respect um, and it's not something you can let your guard down at any time. Uh, you know, those lessons that you learn in the ocean where, you know, especially here in Taranaki where you've got the powerful mm -hmm. Southern Ocean that comes in here, you know, that responsibility, how much does that teach you um, from a leadership point of view at, and, and at a young age? You know, you talked about going for competition, but You've also got to be a lifeguard. Yeah, absolutely. It taught me a huge amount. Uh, taught me about risk, really, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's risk management and mitigation, and and um, and being aware of your environments is really important. And because it's, it's interesting, isn't it? The more you know about the surf and the sea, I think the more you understand how dangerous it is, and 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 how if you're not prepared for it, you can get into trouble. And so that the people that do get in trouble are the ones that don't understand it and think there's, there's, there's no risk. And so as a lifeguard and someone that's worked in some you know, really dangerous situations and, and, and been um, involved in some you know, pretty scary rescues, um, it's, it really hits home to you. That's life that you're dealing with. It's not, you know, a, you might coach, you know, touch football or cricket or something else, but this is this is actually life and death, and you've literally pulled people out of the water who, you know, who wouldn't have come out of the water had there not been a patrol on and, and lifeguards on duty, and that's you know, it doesn't get much bigger than that, does it? Um, yeah. So, 
um, yeah, again, fortunate to be part of that organisation and learn those lessons and, and understand the, um, the, the challenging environment that we've got. And we've, we're so lucky as a country that we've got this service because yeah. in countries where there's not, um, the, the death rate is, you know, is incredibly, incredibly high. Yeah. And did you ever have to deal with, you know, someone, you know, dying in the surf and have to deal with parents, um, you know, at, at a young age, right? That teaches you huge amounts on the importance of life and the importance of, um, you know, respecting people mm. as well. I saw um, when I was at the, the Highland Swimming Club, uh, an unfortunate incident where, where, where someone drowned at a, at a swimming competition that we were at. We were, we were quite young, we would have been, you know, nine or ten, and that was, you know, pretty traumatic to, to see that and see how water, getting, div- getting into difficulty in water is a, is a really dangerous thing, even in a swimming pool. Um, I've never had to perform CPR on anyone, mm. um, but I've, I don't know, I would have saved over 50 or 60 people. Um, and um, and a good, you know, twenty five of them. I'm not sure they would have, um, you know, would have made it if there wasn't a patrol on. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's that's pretty humbling and, and and something that you know sticks with you. And the people that you know, especially the ones that I, I can see them picture them now, mm-hmm. um, picture their arms up and you know flailing around and us you know heading out sometimes in really dangerous conditions big conditions to get out there and get them back in safely um and uh, i can picture their faces and and um yeah and and it's yeah it's um it's brings you back to reality pretty quickly in those situations it does, mm. it does. you know especially you know for someone you know we were talking about this before we come on the show you know like the the pure joy of taking on those big risks, the, the big waves, and you know, I'm sure you've had some some great sessions where you're catching some phenomenal waves that are really big and powerful, and you kind of feel like superhuman. But when you are dealing with saving people's lives, it grounds you really fast. Mm, mm. And um, you know, I know when we had uh, a death up at Middlewai when I was you know on duty there, and we had to deal with you know the, a Pacific family so it's not just the family you have the whole community comes Mm -hmm. and they come for days and weeks until that body's found and you know it's yeah it it, it is tough yeah and you just it just makes you respect that what you have and you know for us we're quite athletic and sporty and we have the gifts of you know all learnt the gifts of swimming and being able to look after ourselves in the water a lot of people don't get that Mm -hmm. very fortunate absolutely yeah so we first met uh, through surf lifesaving and you know one of the defining parts of my life was the surf lifesaving you know, sort of New Zealand young leadership program that you led with Mark Weatherall uh, back in the early 2000s. You know surf lifesaving as we've kind of discussed a little bit so far is, is brilliant at developing leaders and leadership and responsibility and resilience from you know an adolescent age you know even in nippers um, which for the listeners who haven't been involved in surf lifesaving is you know really young kids. Uh, so you know, what do you think you know, what do you think this is kind of that special aspect of surf lifesaving that has such an effective platform for developing future leaders? I think it's the diversity of content. Um, that sounds, I guess, a formal way of saying it, but the, it, surf lifesaving is really broad and there's so many different elements to it. There's, there is the competitive side, the high performance side, there's the recreational side, and then there's that, that lifeguarding and that community service side. And, and so it's almost like a, a melting pot or, a, or a incubator for, for developing and growing and nurturing talent. Mm. Um, it's a lot of skill involved, there's a lot of learning involved, it's not just all physical, uh, it's problem solving, it's assessing conditions and risk management as I said before. So 
it's actually got all the elements that you need in, in leadership in, in one perfect environment that's that's changeable and variable and, mm. and, and can be beautiful and it can be ugly. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think people that get involved in surf lifesaving and are really passionate about it, and I could name, you know, so many that are doing really great things with their lives and, and, and achieving in their own special way, in their own special field, you know, um, yourself, of course, um, as, a, as an example of that, but when we profile all of the, the leadership, um, I shouldn't call them kids because they weren't that much younger than me, but um, the, the ones that came through the program, uh, they're all doing phenomenal things yeah. and they're phenomenal people, which is the most important thing. Um, forget whether you've, you know, you've got a successful business or you're a CEO, but yeah. they're really, really good people. Why? Because they know that they need to give back to the community, they care about their community and they, they care about people and they can work in a team. So. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty special place. The the one thing I kind of resonates a lot with me is is kind of the it's like a one big family, mm. and it's very inclusive. So there's always people watching out for where everyone how everyone's fitting in and and how can they learn and grow. And you know they're quite confident. Uh, some of the elders that have been around for a long time to go. You know what? I'm happy for you to take lead today. You know, you're patrol captain. Mm. You might only be 17, 18 years mm. old, um, but you're lead today. And you know how would you, how would you solve this problem? Mm. And I love that. You know, mm. I love that aspect. You know, um, with due to health problems, I had to take a step back from the sport in my early twenties. And they're like, okay, now your team manager of, you know, middle I was 70, 80 mm. athletes at that point. So you've got, you know, five different sections. So you've got different managers look afterwards, and you're pretty much running your own business for a day. Mm. And you know, that's that's really powerful when people can just go, you know what, I'm going to put trust in you. I'll be here to help you if you need it, but you're good. You're good to go, and and you don't see that often in in a business setting or in, in other environments. So often, it's I think it's pretty incredible. I think you did right. I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of it's a, it is a family and it's a it's a real mentoring sort of a culture without it being um, I guess specifically geared up to be mentoring people. But I remember as a as a young kid going to the surf club and you know we'd, it was little things like you had to respect the, the seniors and so um, that you know the seniors if they need to use the gear or the showers or whatever it was it was a, there was a bit of a picking order and they were never um, nasty or, or, or horrible to us but it was just about really respect hey we've been here a bit longer than you guys this is where and if you were certainly cheeky and getting out of line well they'd pull you back in um, back into line pretty quick yeah. and so it was a it was a real safe way to grow up and sort of a, a real nurturing environment I found. Yeah, and the adventuring side to it as well. Absolutely, yeah, you lots know, of adventures. <laughs> and I think, you know, obviously now that occupational health and safety is, and work health safety has become a lot tighter than some of that adventuring that we used to do, you know, we can't do anymore, which mm. I get it from a safety aspect, but I think, oh, some of those lessons we learned on some of the stuff, you know, we sort of look back now and go, man, that was pretty risky, but, <laughs> but also taught you a lot at the same time. Um, you returned to New Plymouth Boys High School in 2015 as headmaster after you know two decades away from the education system. You know how did you manage to pull off getting the role when you were <laughs> you, you, you weren't a certified teacher? You hadn't been in the education system, but that's just about unheard of. Uh, I was lucky. I, a few things stood in my favour. I was incredibly lucky with the board. Um, at the end of the day, the board took the risk. It wasn't risky for me because I was applying for it, and I and I knew that I could do it. 
but it was really um, a leap of faith for the board because it was something that was unheard of. It was um, quite controversial. The PPTA, and I've still got the article, I might have pinned it on my wardrobe when I did get the job, <laughs> said that the profession should be leading the profession. And Mr. Verich has got a lot to learn and we um, advocate for teachers um, being um, principals. Um, it was, you know, it was quite strongly worded and I thought it was a bit rough given I'd never actually met um, the person or the people involved. Uh, the chair at the time who's still, um, who I didn't know, uh, I actually rang up and said, oh, I'm interested in applying for the role. I'd like to chat to you about it first because I'm, before putting my name in the head, I'd you know like to learn a bit more about what you want and what the board are after because if if our things are aligned, then I'll I'll put my name in the hat. And um, I was devastated because the first question she said is, "Oh, where are you working at the moment? What school are you at?" And I said, "Oh, I'm actually not at a school." Um, and she said, "Oh, um, well, what schools have you taught at?" And it just got worse and worse from there, Craig. It, um, <laughs> she kept asking me all these probing questions, and I had to acknowledge that I didn't have a current teaching practicing certificate. And I hadn't taught for 20 years. And um, she said, she paused and you could see her thinking. And her next words were, I'm really grateful for. She said, no, I'll still meet with you. Um, it'll be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I went and met the, the, the chair and, and, and we just chatted about the school and uh, the things that we liked and, and thought were going well and things that, you know, there was some room for improvement. And and uh, and, and she said, well, look, I, I can't tell you what to do. Um, you know, I can't tell you whether to apply or not. Um, and, um, you know, it's up to you now. And, and if you do apply, then we'll have to work out, you know, what we have to do in, in terms of, um, of managing, you know, that process. And, and so, um, the, I'm grateful that she didn't shut the door on my face. I'm grateful that she actually accepted the opportunity to have a face-to-face -face conversation. And I think she saw in that meeting my passion for the school, my knowledge of the school and the community, and 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 probably went back to you know what skills does he have? Um, the interviews were really challenging because a lot of it was faced around how would you deal with the staff? You're not from a um, well, you were a teacher, but you haven't been for a long time. You haven't been a head of faculty, an assistant principal, a principal of a small school, principal of a medium-sized school, yeah. and then principal, which is the, the general. Um, and I kept going back to, I, I kept repeating these same words to them, what skills do you want? What skills are you looking for? What skills do you want for the next you know, five years uh, for New Plymouth Boys High School? Um, tell me what those are. If I've got those skills, whether I've got a bit of paper that says I've um, I've been a practicing teacher and I've got this you know, certificate which, which says so, or, or whether I've been a head of faculty or a head of department or, a, or an assistant principal, that's all irrelevant. Mm. You've got to park that. You've got to assess whether I've got the skills to do the things that you want to do. And if I have, then I should, be the, I should get the job if I've got those skills in a more demonstrable way than, than someone else. If not, that's cool. You should appoint someone else that's got those skills. Mm. Um, so yeah, in the end I did get it and then um, I guess they braced themselves <laughs> for, <laughs> for, for how to sort of make it work and get through all the red tape of becoming registered, which I had to do and did do and, and, um, and then I just went about my work and yeah. there were lots of people that probably raised their eyebrows and current staff members and, that's, and students and were like, who's this guy, he's coming, he's a businessman and all that sort of stuff. and. Yeah, I just didn't worry about it. Just yeah. blanked it all out 
And, um, the naivety again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> blanked it all out and just did what I thought was best for the school. And if it was, if it worked and was right, then great. If not, well, then I, at least I gave it a good shot. Yeah. So, you know, pretty amazing that you had this kind of dream, you know, as a child to to be a headmaster, and now you've achieved it in a way that you know not many people would would expect. Um, and you took a different path, and I think that diversity of experience that you had beforehand provides a, a really different approach to leading a school. And, you know, from the people I've talked to in the community, you know, you held a really high esteem, you know, mm. from, from the work that you did. So well done in that space. Leading the next generation is an incredible responsibility. You know, what was the most rewarding aspect of being headmaster of such a prestigious school? Uh, yeah, oh, look, it was a privilege. So, yes, sure, it's a responsibility, but it's a privilege. You've got, and I'd say this to the staff and, and regularly, you've got the best seat in the house to observe everything that's wonderful about young people. And that's exactly how I feel about it and, and felt about it and still do, is you get to see those children with, with from really difficult backgrounds and, and, and it's amazing that they just even get to school. I mean, those, those, those young teenagers are so inspiring and... and and I'm in awe of how they can function and and with some of the adversity that they've had to face. And so I, I love that. I love the challenging kids, the cheeky kids, the ones that um, try it on, the, the ones that make bad choices from time to time and, yep. need, um, and, and need some consequences to learn about those. And, uh, and then you get to see the best of the best. And I've worked with some phenomenally gifted, amazing young people who I think are just... I mean, I look back at myself and, and, and my crew when, when we went through school and they're head and shoulders above where we're yeah. at. I've got no doubt about that. They're, they're just, just fantastic. They're articulate. They, they can talk to adults. They're confident. They're not arrogant. They're, they're multi-talented. Uh, yeah, they're just amazing. And so get to see that is just, yeah, is, is such a privilege. Yeah, so, you know, so seeing those people grow and transform is... You know, I think one of the, the greatest aspects of being a leader. Um, do you think society protects our children too much and doesn't give them enough room to make mistakes and problem solve and build that resilience? How do you think it's still, yeah? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and, and I think that's, it's been great to see that and observe that firsthand. And I've, I've had, had my own, conducted my own experience, experiments and I, I often talk to the, the, the prefects or students who are doing well at school, their parents, and say, so what did you do with your, you know, with your children growing up and what was important to you? And so I conduct these little experiments around. And, and yes, we do. And you revert back to, the, to, to my childhood and, and the childhood that my friends had. It was very much hands-off and unstructured and unorganised until until age you know sort of 13 or 14 yeah sure we played sport and stuff but we didn't have something on monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday night you know dancing music you know hockey chess well, you know we didn't have a full calendar we played that's yep. all we did we played in the bush we made go-karts we, we played our own games at the local school after school it was kind of you know you'd as, as long as you are home before dark. Absolutely. There were some parameters, of course. You yeah. know, don't break anything and don't get in trouble because you'll be in trouble. And, um, and make sure you're home um, at this time and you better not be late. Um, and otherwise, it's sort of fill your boots. And, and, so, and we also had to be self-sufficient in terms of, and I, used the, I talked earlier about the example of when I came home and I was upset about... Um, getting the role of head boy, didn't think I could do it, and I burst into tears. And, and there was no 
you know, moddy coddling or, you know, or, or big long speeches or, or debriefs or, or counselling. It was like, just get on with it. Yeah. And I really thank my parents for that because that's how everything was. I was having an issue with a boy at school or I thought I was being bullied or something um, didn't go well. You just had to figure it out. Yeah. And isn't that great? Yeah. Isn't that's that's how you build resilience from figuring things out. And and as long as you know that you've got that safety of the family and the and you, you're unconditionally loved, then it's safe to be um, mm. to, to have a go at sorting things out yourself. And and I really worry and I try hard as a parent myself not to try and rush in and solve my my own kids' um, little daily struggles with yeah. with life and friends and and things and. And yeah, I, I think it's a it's a good learning. Celia Lashley wrote a, a really good book. Um, He'll be okay, and uh, it's a great book for the parents if they've got teenagers and yeah. particularly teenage boys. And it's really about you know taking your hands actually off the steering wheel and letting them be kids and figure things out for themselves. And, yeah. and if they've got good values and and unconditional love, then they'll actually come come out okay. Yeah. I've enjoyed the last couple of weeks. I've got you know four nieces and nephews from one family, and you know this. Uh, where are we there? Eight, ten, twelve, and and fourteen. And so just to watch them, you know, picking order, getting attention, and, and to watch them in that space with four of them has been fantastic. I've just sat back and just really enjoyed watching <laughs> the social and experiment. The, and the fights go on, and and then they come back together and they're hugging each other, and it, it's it's amazing how they how they learn so fast. Pretty awesome. fun. Awesome. So a couple of years ago, you, you spoke in front of the school about a really important topic uh, that can be very confronting for a lot of people and is quite often kept you know, in the quiet, it's kept secret. You know, what was the purpose behind speaking about mental health and suicides to those students? It was, as I said in my speech at the time, it, it was really bugging me. There weren't many things that, well, there's not many things that keep me up at night because people say, what keeps you up at night? What stops you from sleeping? Um, and I've and I don't I sleep well and I and I and I go to sleep, put my head on the pillow and I, I don't worry about things. But I I did and I do and I still do and I've got grave concerns for the mental health and well-being of 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 New Zealanders and and particularly teenagers. And I was seeing it day in day out. Uh, very close relationship with our guidance counsellors and and uh, we'd meet every week and we'd talk about not the detail of students because it's confidential but we'd talk about just generic problems and, and, mm. and what's going well and what's not and the, the scale of it is huge and, and our statistics in New Zealand are, are well publicised and, and well known for all the wrong reasons around suicide and, and, and that's frightening for considering the place that we live in. Mm. We live in paradise. We've, yeah. you know, we've it's high standard of living. It's 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 clean. Um, it's safe in the main, and 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 compared to many places around the world, it's it's paradise. Um, so, so I was grappling with this issue, and I was like, how do I, how do I get across to these kids that that they're actually cared about, and and um, and that we we do take an interest in them, and and deeper than that their life's worth something and mm. worth something to us. And so I grappled with how to do it and and I was talking to someone, it might have been one of the guidance counsellors or or another staff member, but I said, you know, we love these kids, you know, we actually, you know, like if and I tell you, every time a, a student harmed themselves or um, or an ex we had no suicides when, when I was at school, but there there were certainly some ex students um, who who had um, passed away and, and you know, it's gut wrenching, mm. and you just 
I remember an ex-student was who was named in the in the staff room once of um, having committed suicide, and the whole staff were just like the ear just sucked out of the room, and everyone just was like, and, and, and many staff were crying, and and I thought, you know, look how much these people care about all these kids, and do, do the kids actually know this? Do they just see us as a you know, as a bull bugger up the front of the you know assembly, giving them a speech or telling them to pull their socks up or telling them off for something or um, and sure we'd say well done and and I'd I'd like to think I gave them praise when they when they performed exceptionally well and when they did great things which was regularly, but did they actually know how much we cared? So that in a roundabout way that was a that, that was why I did it and why I I felt I needed to give them some needed to be to not not to do something for a stunt or to have impact but to tell them actually how it was mm. that we did love them and and so I took me about ten weeks to deliver the speech I wrote it. Uh, ten weeks earlier, and I and I ummed and art over it. I shared it with a couple of people that I respect their opinion to see what they thought, and and most of them said that was good. One person said I shouldn't do it; it would be the biggest mistake in my life, yep. and I would regret it, and it would be the end of me, um, and wow. it would go down like a lead balloon. And that really challenged me because I was like, holy heck! Um, I'd probably just just on that oh. though, like. I think when you, you know, people talk about trolls in life or people that challenge you. If you don't have someone challenge you like that, it means you're not making a big enough difference mm. or you don't actually, you know, you're not onto something really good. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's cool that it you actually cool. had that. It would have been confronting though. Oh, it was really cool because I really respect that person's opinion and I still do. And and that person was, you know, part of um, some critical decision making at the school and, and often he'd, he'd say to me, oh, look, I'm just think differently. You know, you don't need me. I'm just creating a problem and I'd say, no, no, we actually need, you are so, so critical to because yep. you think differently and you challenge and you're not scared to say what you think. So I'm digressing a bit, but you're right, those people are really important. And in the end I went with my gut, you know, in the end I went, nah, I need to do this, this is too big. And I don't care if it doesn't go well because I need to say it and I'm not gonna leave the school without, you know, letting the kids know how I feel. I think one of the risks around it was I was perceived as being quite tough and uncompromising around standards and I wasn't well liked by the students in my first 12 months because I brought in some change um, which was unpopular with them. Mm -hmm. um, some of the freedoms and decision making that they had, even particularly in the senior school, um, some of the liberties that they had were, were taken away because I felt they weren't, um, there was too much freedom and, and, and I felt they needed more direction and a bit more um, structure around what they were doing and they were taking advantage of those liberties and mm. freedoms and so for that I was very unpopular um, by a large number of the students for, for about 12 months and I think part of the thing with some of the people that gave me advice was I was only just starting to, the, I think the students were just saying actually he's actually okay, yeah. he's actually a real person and he's, um, and he's doing this for our, you know, for our good, um, yeah. it's a bit like the parent that you know, sets boundaries, you, you, you might not you're not there to be their friend, you're there to do things and make decisions which are going to be best for them long term. And so the timing of the speech was probably around the time I was starting to get, you know, um, a bit more, uh, well, perhaps I wasn't so disliked, it's probably yeah. the, the attraction, <laughs> the polite way of saying it. Um, but I'm glad I did it and, um, and it must have been a slow news week because I got picked up a bit and, um, and, um, and, and went from there. I, the irony is, I think, and this is, 
is I think that I'd written better speeches to the assembly um, and delivered better speeches, but it's just the way it goes, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, some things get picked up and some things don't. And if it helped a one boy uh, um, feel better about himself or, or have a conversation with his parents, and that was, that was probably a cool thing. There's a number of parents that came up to me and said that they that their sons went home and talked to them about that speech. And it wasn't in a, um, oh, the headmaster said he loved us. Um, it was in a real, um, wow, um, teachers do care and the school does care. And mum, do you worry about suicide as well? And do you worry about my mm. mental health? And do you? And it just opened up a conversation. Oh. And for that, I mean, that's, that's what it's about, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's what's still... I'm most pleased about is that it opened up conversations in families. Forget the, you know, YouTube or no. Instagram, whatever, um, or the or the stuff clips. The, the parents having real conversations with their with their boys about mental health. Heck, you know, that's a that, that was that was a, a, a great outcome, I think. And, and it's probably one of the things that those boys will they'll, they'll remember that because they could feel it, and, and it was something they could feel, and it was an emotional. And you know, it, you created that picture and, and that feeling inside of them, and that's why they'll, hmm. you know, they'll take that away as a really, really important aspect of their schooling life. You talked there briefly a little bit around, you know, love, right? So, and you did speak about this in in this uh, in your speech and to the students. Why do you think it's it's so hard for people to say I love you? Oh, lots of reasons. I think it's. Um it's, I guess, conditioning in the way that you've you've been brought up in the and in, in your environment and and it hasn't been traditional to be very emotional and expressive and and um, and so if, if you haven't been if, and generally in society it wasn't it wasn't talked about a lot and um, even amongst you know parents to their kids I'm, you know they did tell them that they loved them sure but not to the extent and the degree I think that's um, that's happening today which is which is great. Um, and it's, you know, there's that whole macho thing about um, um, men being men and boys don't cry and, you know, don't be a, um, don't be a girl and all, all those terrible, terrible comments and, and, and indoctrinated thinking around stereotypes around men and women and, and thankfully we're making some progress as a society and thankfully we, we're getting through that and there's lots of role models in society that are helping um, you know, break those barriers down, and and the more people that can be comfortable and vulnerable with their own shortcomings and and, and and inadequacies, then the better that the human race will be. And so, um, I'm just hoping that that my children will be even more empathetic and emotionally intelligent and and vulnerable, and and at the same time confident and and um, and, and determined. Than, than we were, and then if we're doing that, then we're going to be a better society for it, aren't we? So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's digress a little bit here, and you know, we talked about sport quite a bit mm. throughout the session, but we haven't really talked about your achievements as, a, as an athlete yourself. As a, you, know, you, you won national surf life-saving kayak titles and you represented New Zealand. If I were to talk to your competitors at the time, what would they say about you as a competitor and what would be one thing that they couldn't crack? Oh. They would probably say, um, 
that I was professional, um, tough, trained hard, um, and fear. And I think that's what they'd say. I hope they'd say that. That's yeah. what I tried to be. So explain fear a little bit more. Um, well, I, I would never, I'd never compromise the rules or sportsmanship to win. Okay. So if it meant, you know, in kayaking, you can, especially in doing marathon races or or long distance races, you can, you can actually, if you've got your nose in front, you can steer them off to the side and, and cut them off. And that's, I, I was always fair, same around the cans, and and and, and, and I never, never cheated. Um, so yeah, so that that's um, fear. I, they'd probably well. I'd say this about myself. I was. I didn't have much talent. I don't think I did. I. I. But I trained. I'd like to think I trained as hard as anyone else, if not harder. And so, um, I got to where I got to from hard work, not from. I don't think from natural talent or ability. And that's probably that is why I didn't make it internationally because I. You know, you've got to have that natural talent as well, don't you? Um, and they not many people could crack me in training. So, because training's about sustaining a long. Um, a long amount of intensity and effort over a long period of time, and and I, I knew I had to train hard to be as you know to get to where I got to, and um, and so I prided myself in not giving in and taking the easy way out. Like if we had to do repeats twenty one thousands in the kayak, I wouldn't do numbers four, nine, and ten easy. I'd do all twenty as hard as I could, even if it meant I was a bit slower yeah. at the end. I was honest, yeah. <laughs> honest to a fault, properly. <laughs> Yeah, so we can see there as a as an athlete, you know, you're very focused, very determined, hardworking. Um, we can see when we when we speak when you talk about working in the business and as a leader, that you you know you give everything to it. So when you step away from that environment, you know, what allows you to recharge, you know, to free the mind? What what do you do to ensure that you can go, you can turn up and show up the next time you go and train, or or the next time you go to the work or, uh, to be a leader in, in an office situation? Um, well, well, physical activity is a, a big, you know, stress release for me, and, and but I'm a bit OCD in everything that I do. To yeah. be honest, Craig, like I like I, I don't do anything by halves, and um, I do like surfing um, mainly because there's no heart rate monitor, there's no measurable. It's um, it's totally subjective, and yeah. I I don't um, count the number of waves I've had. I don't I, I don't. Um, See if I don't. I'm not competitive with my friends. Of course, I'm trying to get better all the time, and and so I'm a little bit competitive with myself. But it is one place where you've got no phone. It, it's it's really is um, um, free, so I like that. Um, I've taken up skateboarding recently, um, which probably is stupid as a 45 year old. No scars yet. No, no scars, but I wear a lot of safety equipment. To be fair, I look like the Michelin Man. Um, but I've been skating. A, I, I saw a, I saw a um, friend of ours, um, and um, she was down there with her kids, and she was skating the bowl. We just had a bowl built by our house, and she'd be early thirties, I think. And um, and I thought, well, that's impressive. Good on her, you know, doing that. And I thought, you know what? Put, you know, I, I need to get, I need to do something new. So. I brought a, a skateboard and I started and I, what, I had to be the goal of skating this bowl and, and getting out, rolling in and rolling out without um, without putting my feet down and it took me ages, it took me thousands of goes. Um, but I got it and I can do it and I'm, it was, I guess that's an answer to your question is that I like doing different things which, yeah. which push you and still challenge you but perhaps aren't so intense because you just 
you know, gradually improving. Same with mountain biking, trying little things all the time. I'm not yeah. doing big gap jumps and and um, and riding down massive mountains, but I'm slowly getting better and better and trying different things all the time, which is which is fun. Yeah. That leads us into uh, kind of our final section there. You know, we all know smart people have great answers, <laughs> but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Um, yesterday. Um, I'd like to say pretty much every week. I don't think I could say every day, but every week I'd do something new. And on a small scale, like yesterday, when we went mountain biking with a friend, and and we always push ourselves to do um, little things that we haven't done before. And so there were four things on the in the track that we rode locally here that I hadn't done before: uh, little jumps, um, little um, technical downhills. Uh, and so it would be every week I read new books, I read, um, listen to new articles, uh, new podcasts, I've, I do new sport challenges, so often I'll try a different challenge, um, either swimming, I, I love my swimming still, so we do crazy things from time to time and just to <laughs> see if we can um, you know, swim 15k or um, in a session or, um, or do some kind of a set that we haven't done before. So. Yeah, every 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 week I'd do something new, and and pretty regularly every three or four years, which my career would show as I take on a, a, a pretty sizable challenge for me. Might not be for everyone, but for, for me, something that pushes me out of my comfort zone. That's why I've changed roles quite a bit. Mm. Um, as I get um, bored, sounds terrible, but I, I I get ready for the new challenge and for the new thing. Yeah. Um, once something becomes business as usual or or relatively comfortable, I start to find myself wandering, going, "Oh, yeah. you know, I need, I need something new." <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what is the one question that you would love to solve? That's a tough one. Uh, I'd, I'd love to solve things that make uh, society better, and so I'm not a health professional, and uh, I'm not in this area. But if you could solve, you know, cancer and you know, terrible illnesses, if you could solve mental health and and, um, and and people, if you could, you know, those things that make society better, if you could solve um, people's lack of generosity and community-mindedness, um, all of those things which make us better as a society, that'd be the things I'd like to solve them. Um, they're, they're the really important things. They're the things about, yeah, about humanity. Yeah. So for you, how would you define living an extra, extraordinary life? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't set out to be, I, all, I set out to do the things I do because I'm challenged by them. I've never been motivated by saying if I do this, this will look better or this will be, um, this will be, um, this will be received well or, or seen well. I, I'm really focused on and although I'm driven in, in my own physical fitness and, and, and work um, work life, my family's really important to me and, and turning out two decent humans, my two boys, um, uh, seven and five, is a real important goal for myself and my wife and, and I'd love to write a book on um, on bringing up kids and parenting and all that sort of stuff but until my kids are 20 or 30 I, I don't think I can because I'm not sure how they're <laughs> going to turn out yet. Um, so I really enjoy trying our best with them, and look, we're not the perfect parents by any means, and and um, and but we've got two beautiful boys, and 
if we can give them a really great life, then then to me that's that's really special because we're we're mortal and and we really rely on the next generation to um, to to make the next bit of difference. So so that's that's a real focus of mine. Yeah. Now you've uh, given some great insights today. So you know if people want to learn more about what you do, uh, what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Mm. Um, I don't, know, I don't have a website or anything. Um, they can Google me or um, friend me on LinkedIn or, or Facebook. Um, yeah, if, if they really, if they want to. Um, yeah, more than happy to, to anyone to reach out if they want to. Yeah. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, really enjoyed, you know, sort of learning a little bit about your childhood and how that was shaped from your parents coming from Croatia and that really simple life, but making sure that you worked hard and really uh, sort of putting in those those core aspects of what's going to be important for you to grow uh, as, a, as a human being. Um, your, your lessons from surf life saving and having that opportunity to, to play and explore through your childhood and, and being quite vulnerable uh, when you found out about being, you know, head boy. You know, a lot of people would be quite ecstatic about that, but you know, for you at that time it was quite fearful. And you know, if you look back now and go, oh wow, look at all these leadership roles I've had and how open you were and, and how much comfort you have in being an uncomfortable now. You know, it's quite ironic how you've, you've shifted from that space since those times and you know, maybe the lessons from your mum and dad taught you quite a lot at that time. Uh, your ability to cope with uh, challenges and to be able to change and to, to sort of catalyze that change in different organizations and settings that you've been in is, is quite remarkable. And you can really tell and feel inside of you that you just want to continue to transform people all the time and you want to help people become better and better. And that's a really remarkable character trait that uh, not everyone has. And so, you know, I think it's very special to see that in you. Um, it's been a real pleasure to, to get to know you, um, you know, for over the past couple of decades and just to see where you're continuing to grow. So thank you very much for your time today. And we, we look forward to seeing what uh, your next step in your career and, and journey is. Thanks very much, Craig. Really enjoyed it and yeah, thanks for your time. On today's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about CEO preparedness. People make acquisitions because they like and trust the person or people they are speaking or planning to work with. Therefore, the content and performance preparation for a meeting or interaction is an absolute must. Have you thought about how much time you need to spend preparing for an interaction with a person or group of people in regards to what you need to say to achieve the desired outcome, mood you want to set, focus needed, and the way you need to use both verbal and non-verbal communication to achieve the result you are aiming for? You can't just rock up to that interaction and expect to deliver the performance you need to ensure that you get that positive outcome you require. So have a look at your calendar, look at how everything is scheduled and make sure you've got some time beforehand to prepare the content, the way you're gonna deliver that performance and how you're gonna interact with that person to make sure they feel the emotion or connection and they, they, get the, they relate to what you're saying and it ensures that you go home getting exactly what you require as an outcome from that interaction. Thank you for listening to a powerful conversation with Paul Verich. 
the Peaceful Warrior CEO on episode 76 of the Active CEO podcast. When it comes to high performance, it doesn't matter whether you're a singer, dancer, speaker, athlete, coach, CEO, community leader, or even a parent, the same basic fundamentals apply. One of the fascinating phenomena that we see on a daily basis is that performers such as singers, dancers, athletes, artists, and speakers spend more than 95% of their time planning, preparing, and training with less than 5% of their time performing and delivering, whereas CEOs do the complete 360 and do the opposite. It is impossible to flip it fully. However, the benefits of increasing the percentage of time spent preparing and planning to perform in meetings and other interactions from less than 5% to 8, 10, or even 15% can have a profound effect on the outcomes they desire. Active CEO coaching helps CEOs and leaders to reduce the number of interactions, focus on the ones that really matter, and make sure they have the tools to deliver their best performance in every interaction. To learn more about Active CEO coaching and corporate programs, then please contact Craig Johns at Craig at NRG2Perform.com or click on the contact page of www.NRG2Perform.com website. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.NRG2Perform.com. That's NRG2Perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.